Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to my YouTube channel. My name is John Campia, and this is a companion video. What are companion videos? Well, I'm awfully glad that you asked. See, every day on the John Campia Show, Monday through Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, we take the second half of the show to take your live comments and questions that you guys send in using the tip link. However... We normally don't have enough time to get through all the live comments and questions that get sent in. But since you sent in those great fun topics and you supported our channel, I want to make sure those questions get answered as soon as possible. So we gather up the unused ones and we address them here on companion videos. Or when we do them live, we call them John Campy After Dark. But this one is just a pre-recorded companion video. So thanks for being here, guys, and checking out this video. And let's not waste any time and start getting caught up on your questions. And we're going to start getting caught up here with... A. Marcellus, who writes, one of two. So let's talk Babylon 5 reboot. A lot of people want to talk about this. I'm going to approach this intelligently and avoid the W word. Uh, what uh, People are freaking out already because they see reboot, CW, and it's the year 2021. Let's be clear. Straczynski has always been fair and balanced in his writing. If you really pay attention to... Um, if you really pay attention to the original show, it had political, religious, and social issues galore, which a lot of good science fiction will have that stuff. Anyway, can we stop with the pessimism and have faith in this? Uh, this won't be Batwoman, LOL. Also, Traczynski's writing blows every CW writers out of the water. Yeah, like, like I said, I've been saying since they announced this thing that I think if you are a fan of Babylon 5, you've got to be excited about this. Like, yes, the platform it's going to is CW, but that's kind of irrelevant. It's the original creator with the original studio behind it. And if you like their work that they did before, I don't know why. Like, listen, nothing guarantees that it's going to be great. Obviously, it could be terrible. But I think you have a lot more reason to be enthusiastic and optimistic than you do for being pessimistic. That's just my personal take on it. We'll see how it goes. Thanks for sharing your thoughts, Marcellus. All right, next up. We've got Super Korean who writes, Hey, John and Rob, and obviously Rob's not here right now. So I'm a huge fan of True Detective Season 1, and I am also a fan of True Detective Season 3. It's fun to fun cast, so I thought of Michael Fassbender and Sam Rockwell uh, would be great, or Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Joaquin Phoenix. Well, I mean, I don't care about doing X actor and X role things. I mean, really, with an anthology series like True Detective, you can just say any good actor paired with any good actor, and it'll work out. I mean, really, it all depends on the writing and everything like that. By the way, I didn't even think, nobody nobody gives any credit to season two, the one with Vince Vaughn. And I actually didn't think that's, obviously, it wasn't as good as season one, but I actually thought that season was okay, in my opinion, but that's just me. All right, Donda writes, with Sony still trying to build their Spider-Verse out to compete with the MCU and DC, by the way, Sony is not building their Spider-Verse trying to, let's get this straight. They're not building out their Spider-Verse to compete with the MCU and DC. They're not competing with them. They're just trying to make good movies and make money. They don't need to compete with the MCU to make money. If the MCU makes money, that doesn't take money away from them, right? So let's just be clear. They're making it because they want to make something successful. They're not, they don't see themselves building it to compete with the MCU and DC at any rate. Is there a Spider-Man villain or character they have you would like to see get their own movie like Venom, Morbius, and Craven? I mean, Craven's really the main one. Um, but listen, you'd have to flesh out this Spider-Man universe a whole lot more before you get to a Ben Riley. But as much as everybody hates the whole clone saga stuff, and I get it, I've always been fascinated by the whole 
idea of Ben Riley. And I would be interested in seeing a Ben Riley kind of screen to honest, honestly. All right. Donda also writes with the failure of in the Heights, Evan Hansen, and don't get me started on cats. What do you think the future is for Broadway film adaptations? Also, how well do you think West side story will do me and Rob have had this discussion a bunch about West side story. Honestly, I don't think West side story is going to do all that. Well, I really don't. I, and look, I don't want to get purist mad at me, but I don't think West Side Story, there are many, many old movies where you can take those old movies, retranslate them into a modern context and or retell them even in their original context, but in a modern way today, and they can work great, okay? I don't know that West Side Story is one of those movies. And it's got the greatest filmmaker of all time, Steven Spielberg. And I'm not exaggerating. He is the greatest filmmaker of all time. But... And he's making it, so that's got a lot going for it. But honestly, I don't think a tremendous amount of people are going to be interested in it. Now, will the movie be good? Well, it's Steven Spielberg. I'll bet you anything it's going to be good. But it will be successful. I don't think it's going to make a lot of money, Donda. I mean, I hope I'm wrong because it's Steven Spielberg, but I don't think it's going to make much money. All right. Bryce, a.k.a. B. Gill Studios, writes, Hey, John and Rob, and Rob's not here, obviously. Uh, I just want to say thank you for your great advice you gave me the last show. I can't remember which advice we gave you. I was getting, I was giddy just to be, I was giddy just to be given it. I'm a filmmaker in the Chicago metro. Oh, I think I remember this now. In the Chicago metro area, and I'm taking advantage of the market here. Rob's advice gave me a good perspective. Bring on the filthy. Yeah, and listen, that is awesome that you're, you're actually a filmmaker and you're out there and doing that, and that's, awesome. And I think if we, we, me or Rob gave you any bit of inspiration, that's great. And best of luck to you, man. I hope it works out really, really well. Thanks for sending that in Bryce. All right. Next up, Lilu Dallas Multipass writes, hello, regarding the lawsuits and royalty rights for characters in 1983, they made a bond movie called never say never again. That's the Sean Connery one. Uh, this movie is not a part of the official bond franchise. No, it is not. Why is that? And can something similar be done to DC slash MCU characters? No, the whole never look, I'm not going to run through everything with never say never again. It's a big complicated situation. The basics is this. I think it was Thunderball was the name of the book. Anyway, the creator of James Bond, he co-wrote a novel, Thunderball, with two other writers, something he didn't do on his other Bond stuff, right? And then later, uh, something happened where basically those two writers, or at least one of those other two writers, sued um, to get the TV and movie rights to that story. And also they got a producer credit on an original thing that they put out. So basically a part of their settlement was I think it was 12 years after Eon Pictures, the the company that makes the Bond films, made their version of Thunderball, that 12 years later, this guy who won the lawsuit, I mean, they settled, but really he got everything he wanted. So he kind of won. The guy who won the lawsuit, the guy who co-wrote the Thunderball novel with Fleming, with Ian Fleming, he would be allowed to produce his own version of Thunderball. And that became Never Say Never Again. And so it was as a result of an agreed upon an agreed upon settlement in court. It was a very, very, very unique situation. Theoretically speaking, could something like that happen with Marvel or DC? Theoretically, yes. But again, it would take a whole bunch of very specific circumstances to all line up perfectly. All the suns would have to align, you know. 
So it's unlikely. It is very unlikely. Let's say somebody can come along and make a, I don't know, a Batman movie. That's not really a Batman movie. You know what I mean? But I mean, it's possible it happened there, but if that, again, that was a very, very unique set of circumstances. So I wouldn't count on that on being something that could just easily happen again another time. You know what I'm saying? And by the way, the story behind Never Say Never Again is actually really fascinating. I, I highly encourage you. We're not going to take the time to do it here, but I highly encourage you to jump online and uh, do some Googling of, you know, how did Never Say Never uh, Again get made? Why did it get made? Why is it not part of the Bond franchise? It's really fascinating stuff, and you should go look into it if you're at all interested in Bond lore and stuff like that. All right, next up, uh, we have Avoiding Spoilers Venom Rights. Good luck with that. Uh, hey, John from the UK. Venom doesn't open here for another two weeks, and already I'm finding it hard to avoid spoilers, specifically uh, then hype around a post credit scene. Will your shows be spoiler-free until it's out worldwide? Why do studios do this? Because the studio's number one priority is releasing a movie in a territory when they believe they can make the most money on that release date. And if that's not the same as a date in another country... So be it. And, and look, spoilers aren't the biggest things in the world. Look, we have a policy on the John Campia show. For a theatrical movie, um, we generally don't allow spoilers until at least the movie's been out on home video for a while. So we generally don't allow spoilers unless it's a movie like Endgame where everybody saw it in the first week and so you were pretty open to talk about it after that. But our general rule of thumb for theatrical movies is you cannot talk about spoilers in an open way on the show. Like we'll do a spoiler discussion video, but that'll be clearly marked as a spoiler discussion video until it's done its theatrical run and has been out on home video for a little bit. Now, I can't guarantee you some trolls won't jump in the live chat and start you know, spoiling stuff in there. So you want to be careful. Maybe you want to turn off the chat or whatever for a couple of weeks. But yes, we will not talk about, on a regular show, we will not talk about Venom spoilers. Not in an open way at any rate. All right, good question, man. And and best of luck trying to stay spoiler-free. It's going to be tough. It's going to be very, very, very tough. All right, next up, Jonathan writes, any good Batman comics to read? So far, I've read Long Halloween, Court of Owls, Dark Knight Returns, uh, Metal... Death in the Family, currently re reading a zero, a zero Year, love Scott Snyder's work, any other comics by him I should read too, thanks. Well, you know what, the one, I've talked about this one a little bit more recently, and I'm really surprised it doesn't come up in more conversations. If you want to go beyond the, the super popular ones, like Nightfall and stuff like that, but by the way, you should read Nightfall, but um, there's one that I absolutely got fascinated with that not a lot of people talk about, and it's called No Man's Land. The base it follows the the Cataclysm storyline, and basically it's like Gotham has basically been abandoned by the United States of America. It's been blocked off. It's been quarantined off. People had opportunity to evacuate, and if they didn't evacuate by a certain date, they closed it up. But now you're trapped in there. Nobody can go in or out. Blah blah blah. It's really fascinating. It's really, really good story. And I don't hear anybody talking about it anymore. Now, I don't know if that's a Scott Snyder novel or not. Listen, I'm going to be honest with you. For the most part, I don't follow who the individual writers are. I mean, uh, Vaughn, I, I do, because Vaughn has done some of the most incredible work in the last number of years. But other than Vaughn, there's really not, um, there's really not a lot of 
writers that I follow. So I don't know who wrote what. I mean, Robert Meyer Burnett could probably answer that one better than me. But if you're looking for a good Batman story to read, I would suggest No Man's Land as one that's a little bit more off the radar. But that's just me. All right. Thanks for that, Jonathan. Next up, uh, Guy Fox JLT writes, I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan since your Guardians of the Galaxy review outside of the theater. Well, thank you, man. Uh, when do you think uh, the old channel gained success and studios started to notice your work? Well, I mean, if you want to talk about my old channel, you're really going back to my old blog, which was called The Movie Blog. The Movie Blog is really how I got into the business, right? So I was studying law and uh, no, no, I wasn't even studying law yet. It was before that. It was just before I went back to school to study law and I was blogging a bunch because I was, I wasn't living in uh, Ontario at the time. I was living in another part of Canada. So I was doing some blogging as a way to keep all my friends and family back home up to date with what I was doing. And I realized, you know, what? a lot of my blogging is about movies. I should just start a separate blog altogether to write all my stuff about movies, all my thoughts and feelings about movies. So I started a new website called the movie blog. And this was so early in the days of blogging that the domain name, the movie blog was still available. So I started a website called the movie blog and uh, over a couple of years of doing it, it grew and grew and grew. And um, I hit about, I think it was around a quarter of a million views a month is when I, once I got to about 250,000 views a month, I, I think it was an article I did because it was one of the most popular articles I ever wrote on the movie blog, which was, this is going back to blockbuster days was, you know, the biggest stress any dating relationship had was picking a movie at blockbuster, right? Was picking out a movie at blockbuster. This is how long ago I was doing the movie blog. And so I did this article that's basically how to properly pick a movie at uh, when you're as a couple, how to properly pick a movie at Blockbuster. So everybody's happy. Right. And I, I wrote this article on it and it got a lot of response. Like, I, I don't know why that one did, but it got a lot of response. So much so that I eventually got reached out to by the studio behind Oliver Stone's uh, 9-11 movie. I can't remember the exact title of it, but Oliver Stone did a 9-11 movie. I think he did it with Nicolas Cage. And the studios took notice of my site. And so when they were doing a Canadian press junket for it, they reached out to me and said, would you like to come in and interview Academy Award winner Oliver Stone? And I'm like, yeah, I would very much like to do that. Thank you. And so um, I got to go in and interview Oliver Stone. That put me on some radar and... Uh, eventually I started to get more stuff from studios. I, I started to get more press uh, releases from studios and then invitations to certain events and then being requested by studios to cover certain things. And then where it really took off was Time Magazine did an article with me called um, uh, Boys Who Love Toys is a new superpower in the world of film. And it was all talking about the new online movie pundits. And they put me on the cover of it. They dressed me up in this Jedi outfit and they put me, they gave me this film reel to look at while I was in a Jedi outfit. And they made it like the cover image and stuff like that for the story. And, and then obviously then every studio took notice after that. And I started, and then especially when I moved to LA, so it was a gradual progression. 
But I would say the one that kind of put me on the radar for the first time was that one article I wrote about couples picking out movies and blockbusters. I think that's kind of oddly enough, the the first domino that fell. And then there was a whole series of dominoes after that. Anyway, thanks for asking, man. I really appreciate that. All right. Sam um, Melamstrand writes, Hey, John, greetings from British Columbia, Canada. I love BC. It's so gorgeous. I'm more new to this show and love what you do with everything. Thank you so much, Sam. I appreciate that. I was curious if you've seen trailers for Injustice, the new DC animated show coming out. Uh, Love to hear your thoughts and have a great day. Listen, Injustice Gods Among Us, uh, first of all, very, very popular video game. But the graphic novels, the comic series that they put out as a result of the games is I think the best written comic series in years. I I, I mean, I started reading the comic series of justice gods among us and I could not stop reading. I couldn't stop. I, I eventually bought, like I bought the whole collection immediately and I just read the whole thing probably in a day and fell in love with it. There's one scene in particular where Superman and Flash are in their orbital space station and they're playing chess next to a window looking down on Earth. They're playing chess, but they're playing chess at a super high speed, right? And Superman is proposing to Flash, how about you and me go down and we take away everyone's guns? We take away everyone's guns. We, you, you and me can disarm the entire world in a matter of a couple of hours. You know, let's go do that. And they get into this very philosophical discussion and debate about what lines, where does a hero's responsibility get into something that is beyond what is appropriate for them to do? When are they crossing? When does a hero's responsibility start crossing boundaries that they shouldn't do and shouldn't get involved in? You know, especially when it comes to the the idea of taking away humanity's free will and stuff like that. Anyway, it's such a brilliantly written scene. It's amazing. So anyway, all that being said, that made me very interested when I heard they were doing an animated Injustice. I thought the trailer sucked. I'm not going to lie to you. I thought the trailer sucked. I thought it looked like the cheapest of cheap animation. Um, and it does it does not, at least the trailer, the trailer doesn't make me think they handled this story with the respect it deserves. Now, I might, that that's just the trailer. Maybe the actual product is really good. And maybe it is. I hope it is. But um, I, I'm got, I can't lie to you, Sam. I did not like the trailer at all. I love this story, but I did not like the trailer at all. Fingers crossed that the product's going to be great, though, Sam. And thank you again for writing in from British Columbia. Go Canucks. All right, next up, Anonymous writes, Hey, John, while I'm beyond excited and can't wait for Spider-Man No Way Home, I'm a little concerned that with all the rumors about everybody who's in it, that it may get to be too bloated and less story-driven and more flash. Let me know what you think. I mean, look, yes, I understand that's always a little bit of a concern right? But the reality is this. A lot of movies, a lot of great movies have a lot of characters, right? I mean, just go, like, look at the comic book movie that really kicked off the golden age of comic book movies, the, the, the first X-Men film, right? How many characters are in that? I mean, you've got, um, you got Charles, you got Magneto, you got Mystique, you got Toad, you got Sabretooth, you got Cyclops, you got Wolverine, uh, you got Gene, you've got, uh, did I already say, you got Rogue, did I say Rogue? I can't remember if I said Rogue. You got Storm. I mean, that's a lot of characters. 
I mean, I just named 10. That's not even mentioning the senator or like that's like, it's like that's 10 key characters right there. But that movie's fantastic. Or look at, you know, Infinity War or Endgame. How many characters do those movies have? Tons. It's not about how many characters are there. It's all about how does the filmmaker handle those characters? Because guess what? There's a lot of crappy movies with two or three key characters. And there's a lot of great movies with five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten key characters. So again, it's not about, everybody wants to point to formula. More characters does not equal more convoluted movie. If it's being done properly by the right filmmaker who knows how to balance the storytelling, it's all good. It's all good. So listen, John Watts has earned the benefit of the doubt. He did a really good job on the first two Spider-Man movie. I think he's going to do a good job on the third. So I wouldn't worry about it. Let's, let's just see how it kind of turns out. I, so I, yeah, don't panic. Don't panic. All right. Next up, we got BK Dan who writes, John, my prediction and mark me. Dune, 52 million opening weekend domestic. I mean, it's not too terribly far off from what I'm guessing. I'm guessing it's lower. I'm guessing 40 million because again, it's opening Warner Brothers is screwing everybody by putting it on HBO um, on the same day that it comes out in theaters in North America. So that's going to hurt it a lot. So I'm going to guess 40 million. I hope you're right. And I hope it's higher. I hope Rob is right. Rob, I think guessed like 65 million. I hope he's right. All right. BK Dan also writes, John, the boys spinoff equals grown up sky high. Bring on the filth. No, it does not. Uh, this is from the description of this video. It's not just that it's dirtier. It's fundamentally a completely different story. This isn't just sky high. Oh, the kids of other superheroes, you know, oh, what was uh, Kurt Russell's? Was his Rampart? Was that the name of the main character, Rampart? Anyway, these aren't the kids of other heroes. Like this is very fundamentally different. The only thing that's similar is there's a school, right? So I don't think there's going to be any other similarities at all. All right, Monkey of All DJs writes, Hey, John, been with you since the AMC days. Thank you so much, Monkey of All DJs. Did you know Last of Us is filming in and around Calgary? I believe, I, I heard it was filming in Canada. I didn't know it was specifically around Calgary. Found out that a friend of mine's wife, uh, that a friend of my wife, I should say, is working on the show. Yeah, listen, a lot of stuff is shooting up in Canada and more and more stuff. Like normally when stuff shoots in Canada, it's quite often around Toronto or Vancouver. Like that's where a lot of stuff shoots, but more and more, a lot of stuff recently has been shooting in Calgary in and around Alberta as well. So uh, I'm not surprised to hear it, man. I'm not surprised to hear it. Thanks for sharing monkey. All right. Justice F eggs and ketchup rights out of the box, lateral thinking question here. All right. Captain America is a highly regarded fictional story of morality in its purest form. However, as the ultimate fictional example of sociopath, the title of the most moral person in the MCU does not belong to Steve Rogers, but to the mad Titan himself, Thanos. Discuss the validity, implications, and meaning of the statement. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, no, I disagree. I think especially once you get into Endgame, you see ultimately the facade of a good, just misunderstood, just misunderstood guy in the form of Thanos is gone. He's evil. And that really comes to the forefront in, uh, in Endgame. Like the veil of the facade of, oh, I'm just a, a good guy with good motives and you just misunderstand me. That all gets peeled away. He's evil. He may see himself as a hero, but uh, he's evil, dude. That dude is evil. All right, thanks for sending that injustice. All right, Willow writes, 
You've said that in addition to getting the best performances from actors, another key role of the director is to make sure the story flows well. Is that part of editing? Sure, that's editing is definitely a part of that. If so, is that primarily the responsibility of the director or the film editor? Well, here's the thing, Willow. Like, everything done in a movie is done by somebody other than the director. The actors on screen, unless it's Clint Eastwood, <laughs> that's not the director. Those are the actors. The person recording the sound is the, you know, the various sound engineers, the people getting, getting all the audio, uh, the shots. Well, that's the cinematographer. The lighting is, is these people. The costuming is these people. The makeup is these people. Like it's the, the script is even often written by other people, right? It's the director's job to steer the whole ship. So everything, like an actor's performance is not just the director. It's the director working with the actor. The editing isn't just the director, and it's not just the editor. It's the director working with the editor. The costume people have to make the costumes the way the director wants them done. The makeup has to be a way the director approves. The locations have to be approved. Like, you got very talented, professional, like, you've got people who are full-time. Their whole careers are scouting locations for movie shoots, right? But everything they do is under the direction of and has to get the approval of the director, right? So, yes, it is a combination of the editor and the director, for sure, because the director has to approve every single edit. The director has to give the editor the direction that they want it to go and all kind of stuff, and then it takes a really skilled editor to bring that to life. So it's a combination of the two, but so is almost everything in a movie. Almost everything in the movie is a combination of the skills of this artist with the director, and then when it comes to makeup, it's that artist with the director. And then when it comes to the costuming, it's that artist with the director. You know, so yes, it's definitely a combination, as is almost everything that happens in a movie. Great question, Willow. All right, next up, Super Korean writes, Hey, John and Rob. Rob's not here, obviously. I'm curious to know if you've seen the two episodes of Foundation yet. I have. I've watched both. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I really didn't care for the romance in it. I thought I thought that was natural. Uh, but everything else was pretty great to me. If you've seen the two episodes, what do you think of them? I think they're off to a great start. I think the show is off to a great start. Now, I don't know if it's going to... You know, I don't know if it's going to continue to be great. It's easy for a show to start great. Let's see how well it goes. But so far, I'm really, really big into it. I, I think it's fantastic. The mythology they're setting up. I love the three emperors, you know, Brother Dawn, Brother Day, Brother Dusk. Um, I really thought Brother Dusk, for, for just for a second, I thought Brother Dusk was Negan from uh, Walking Dead. And I keep forgetting the actor's name, who's uh, John Winchester in Supernatural. Anyway, um, but it's clearly it's not. I love Lee Pace. So I love seeing him as, you know, Brother Day, the the Emperor. Uh, I love that. So, yeah, so far I'm really, really digging it, man. I really am. All right, next up, uh, Casey McNatt writes, one or two. Well, John, let the crazy month of movies in October begin. I already have my first reservation down on Saturday. I will be seeing Venom 2, Let There Be Carnage. Me and Anne are going to go see that tomorrow night. I've already seen it, but Anne and I are going to go watch it again tomorrow night. Uh, then on Wednesday, I'm going to an early access version of No Time to Die. Lucky you. And then... Uh, since I have already seen Bond, the next Saturday, I'm planning on seeing The Craziness of Lamb. That one looks bonkers. Uh, it's already starting off crazy for me because the next movie I plan to see after all that is uh, Tatane. So I so already four movies in the first two weeks of October. Listen, October 
Oh, thank heavens for October. This is truly going to be the first normal month of the movie industry. Yeah, we've had a few films open. You know, we had Black Widow open. We had Fast 9. We had Shang-Chi. But, you know, all very spread apart. Big movie here. Big movie there. October is the first month where we're really actually kind of getting back to normal. Where we literally have significant new movies opening almost every week. And it's going to be very, very... I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know how it's going to go. But it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how this very first month back, how the audiences respond and do what they come out to the movies. And I don't expect huge, huge numbers for any movie in October. It's still got to be a process of getting everybody back into the flow of things. But October is the month that's going to start that, and I'm very excited about it. All right, thanks for writing that in, Anonymous, or Casey, I should say. Next up. Super Korean writes, what's up, John and Rob? Again, Rob's not here. So what's this nonsense with uh, Milana Veintrub? Oh, that's the um, uh, uh, commercial, commercial, not uh, not T-Mobile. That was that really beautiful Canadian long brown haired actress. Um, uh, that's the, the, what's the name of the company? AT&T. She's the AT&T commercial girl, right? Uh, being Squirrel Girl. Never heard of that rumor. I kind of want this, but I know it's never going to happen. Well, yeah. So why are we talking about it? Help me, Obi John Kenobi. You're my only hope to explain this. I have ne- I've not heard a rumor of that at all, and I certainly have not read that in any legitimate trade. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about super Korean. It's Probably not going to happen. All right. Next up, anonymous viewer writes, "Hey, John." I was wondering if you and Rob have seen the first episode of Foundation. We just discussed that. I thought both episodes are pretty good, and I can't wait to see where they go from here. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I've seen the first two episodes, ended on a bit of a cliffhanger. It's like, what the hell? Um, I was, and I, what really bummed me out, when I sat down to watch the first two episodes, I thought three were out. And so I'm watching the second one and it ends. I'm like, oh my God. And I went right back to the remote to load up the third one because I thought there was a third episode out. It says, comes out on Friday. I'm like, oh. So yeah, I have seen the first couple episodes of Foundation and I really enjoy it. As a matter of fact, I enjoy it so much. I might start doing a weekly open spoiler discussion about it. Uh, Like a post-game show, like we do for the Marvel uh, Disney Plus shows. I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm not sure yet. I've got to decide quick because there are already two episodes in, but I'm thinking about it a little bit. All right, next up. Uh, Dalvin35 writes. Is that right? Dalvin. Dalvin35 writes. One of two. Hey, John. Been watching since the AMC days. Thank you so much, Dalvin. And since those days, people have been asking about your top 10 list. Yes, and I never give them. Uh, have you ever thought or would you consider doing a monthly series based on your lists? Best of all, time, action, drama, etc. Uh, I know you're a busy man, but I think people would watch and you wouldn't have to answer top 10 questions as much. Thanks. Nah, no interest. And I'll, I'll tell you why. While I definitely will once or twice a year do some kind of list, right? I, don't, don't get me wrong. I think list videos can have merit and can be useful. But most list videos do more damage than good. Um, there's really no point in doing a top 10 thing for, for several reasons. Number one, um, your minds change, you know, 
you can do a top 10 video on like the top 10 Tom Hanks films. And then at some point, three years later, I may mention, you know what? I think I do like Castaway a little bit more than Bachelor Party. Oh, but John, in 2006, you did a video and you said in the top 10 of Tom Hanks that you said Bachelor Party was better. Why are you so inconsistent? Why should I believe anything you say? Uh, why would I give myself that headache? I just... Uh. And also, it's, it's kind of... It's kind of falls in line as well with why I don't give scores in my movie reviews anymore. Because like, let's say I do a top 10 video, right? And I do a top 10, I don't know, just for argument's sake, uh, top 10 comic book movies since 2016. I'm just making this a, a, a category, right? Top 10 comic book movies since 2016, right? I could give uh, 10 great movies, right? But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because Son Jackalope is going to go, John, in your top 10 list, you said Spider-Man Far From Home was, you put it at number five and you had Doctor Strange at number six. How dare you? You lose all credibility. And I'm like, oh, go fuck yourself, please. Anyway, so I just thought it's not worth the irritation. It's not worth the irritation to me. I mean, and by the way, and that and I've had that's that example I just gave, you may laugh. I have had that exact scenario many times over my career, going all the way back to the movie blog days. And I and I'm telling you, it's like I could that person and I could have every single one of the same movies from number one to number ten, except we might have number five and number six in a different order, and it turns into this big, long email I get, but you've lost all credibility. How could you possibly put that one at number five? It should have been at number six. Anybody with brains would have known it should be at number six. I'm like, do I just, do I really want to spend any time hearing from or dealing with stupid people? No, I don't. It's like everybody's list is going to be unique. See, ideally, the idea of putting together lists in an ideal world should be a fun discussion starter. That's that's what lists should be, fun discussion starters, right? Certainly back in the earlier blogging days they were, they were just really good, you know, starting points for some fun conversation. But, you know, uh, then the entitlement era began and everybody suddenly they look at lists very differently. So again, it's kind of similar to why I stopped doing uh, scores for my movies. It's like, wait a minute, John, you gave that one a 7.3, but in 2011, you gave this other movie a 7.5. How dare you say that movie is better than this one? Yeah, And it's like, uh, uh, it's, um, mm, I don't want to deal with it. You know, because if, if a seven to me means something different than a seven to you, then what's the point of giving a score? There's no point in giving a score. I will do my movie reviews and I will just tell you exactly what I think about a movie. And if then you say to me, yes, but what do you give it out of 10? Well, you figure it out. You just listen to everything I just said about the movie, the good, the bad, and the indifferent, and you figure it out. But I'm not giving a score to it because it doesn't do anything constructive. Um, so anyway, yeah. And again, that doesn't mean I think lists are completely useless or whatever. That's why like once or twice a year, I will do a little list. 
in an attempt to be a fun conversation starter. But even when I do those ones, eventually it turns into, oh, John Campy. Like I'll even have other YouTubers make a video about it. I go, John, I, seriously, this has happened. John Campy put this movie at number three on that list. He's clearly knows nothing about me. It's like, oh, Jesus Christ. Thanks, but no thanks. So no. Uh, Dalvin, no, I basically don't have a lot of interest in doing, certainly not doing regular versions of top 10 lists, uh, just because it's not worth the hassle of the irritation. Hey, but I do appreciate you asking about it, dude. Anyway, I hope I explained, you know, my own personal, I'm not saying I'm right to not do them, by the way. Maybe I should still do them. Maybe I should, but I hope I at least explained why I feel like I shouldn't bother. You know, you don't have to agree with me and that's fine. I, I'm just, I hope I explained myself. Anyway, thanks for writing in, dude. All right, next up. Ricky Bobby writes, one of two. This isn't a spoiler. I always love it when it starts with this isn't a spoiler. Since last night he confirmed that the song is coming out. Uh, but what did you what did you think of Eminem's new song in Venom 2 now that you've seen the movie? I'm a huge fan of Eminem uh, and my favorite music artist of all time other than Linkin Park. And I'm super excited to hear it. I, I thought uh, the music that played, I was wondering that myself. Watching As I was sitting there watching Venom 2. And as the end credits were about to start, I I was wondering throughout, I wonder if they're going to play an Eminem song at the end of it. And they did. And I liked it. I don't think I liked it quite as much as the one in the first movie, but uh, it's a good tune. Now, Grant, I've only listened to it once, obviously, because I was in the theater, but I liked it. Yeah. So I think if you're a big Eminem fan, Ricky Bobby, I think, at least I hope that you're going to be happy with it when you hear it. I, I hope you will. All right. Next up. McJesus writes, I think people are overthinking mutants in the MCU. It wasn't long ago uh, we were to have Inhumans. What does Inhumans have to do with X-Men? Uh, you switch out a few names, places, etc., and you kind of have the same thing in essence. No, you really do not. That is, I, I feel comfortable in saying to you, my film-loving brother, McJesus, that that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the X-Men. So anyway, uh, I really don't think they're going to see multiverse mutants, thank God. Yeah, I don't I don't know what they're going to do. But listen, when you're talking about the X-Men, the X-Men are so much more important than the Inhumans, and they have such a deeper and richer history, both in fiction and in the real world that brought them about. There's such a deep, important history to the X-Men and the mythology. It is not the same in essence, in any way, shape, or form as the Inhumans. I mean, they can say, well, the humans are kind of created in a way to kind of be an answer to the... Yeah, but, but they really, you can't compare the two. One, you could just spit out and say, ah, let's do uh, Inhumans. Okay. The X-Men has a much deeper, richer, and specific history to them that is going to complicate things. It's going to complicate things. And that's why I've said for a long time that I don't have a good theory. Like, so I don't blame anybody's theory because I don't have a good theory myself. I've not come up with a single good theory. So it's going to be challenging. Whatever, because whatever Kevin Feige comes up with, it's going to have problems because there's no way to do this perfectly. There is no way to bring, like with Captain America, you could perfectly bring him into the MCU. With Iron Man, you could perf with Thor, there's a perfect way to do it. With the X-Men, the way the universe has been set up already, there is simply no perfect way to do it. Anything that Kevin Feige comes up with, or that you come up with, or that I come up with, is gonna have some major drawbacks and problems. So what Kevin Feige and his team are gonna just have to do is come up with the best possible one. I understand we're not gonna get the perfect answer. 
every any possible scenario they come up to bring the X-Men in is going to have some problems with it. So we're just going to have to accept that. Uh, but no, it is not the same as the Inhumans, McJesus. My film-loving brother, it is not the same. All right, next up. Dark Helmet writes, one of three. Hey, John, here's an idea I thought of for what could have what could have worked to fix the Leia problem with the rise of Skywalker. Recast with an actress who looks as close to Carrie Fisher as possible. That's not important. Looking like is that's the least important thing in the world. Anyway, uh, while also using some prosthetics, you could always say, um, uh, oh, so you didn't get it in time. So that's dark and then two. And then cast a voice actress who sounds a lot like Carrie Fisher. No, this is a terrible idea already, Dark Helmet. Uh, vo- cast a voice actress who sounds a lot like Carrie Fisher to redub the actress. That's what they did with Maul in, Sol- in, uh, in Solo. Yes, but that was only just a couple of lines with Ray Park playing Maul and then having Sam Witwer's voice redub him. Yes, but that was just for a couple of lines. Uh, do you think that would have worked? Thanks and made the Schwartz be with you. Uh, Spaceballs 2, The Search for More Money. Um, no, Dark, I, I gotta tell you, dude, I, that's a terrible idea. First and foremost, the character comes first. The character comes first. Having a major character in your movie where you have one actor playing it and somebody else dubbing the voice over the, I, that's just not, that. that is not the recipe for the best possible performance. That's not the recipe for the best possible performance. You know, when um, Richard, uh, why am I freezing on this name here? Give me a second. Who played Dumbledore again? Who uh, played Dumbledore uh, in Harry Potter? It was Richard, 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 Richard Harris. That's right. Uh, By the way, it's Richard Harris's son who is the star of Foundation, by the way. And he was also the star of Chernobyl. Anyway, so when Richard Harris died, Dumbledore is far too important of a character. They didn't go, let's go out and find somebody who looks just like Richard Harris. And what's the name of the guy they got? Michael Gambon, I think is the the guy they went out and got after that. I think his name is Michael Gambon. Um, they Because Michael Gambon looks nothing like Richard Harris. I mean, not really. Um, find somebody who sounds exactly like Richard Harris. Michael Gambon sounds nothing like Richard Harris. They just, we as the audience said, okay, this is Dumbledore now. And yeah, he wore the same costume and everything too, but Michael Gambon brought his performance. And while I I hear a lot of Potterheads saying, you know, it was never as good without Richard Harris. Listen, Michael Gambon did a great job. He did a great job as Dumbledore after Richard Harris passed away. He was terrific. He was absolutely terrific. And that all... And that added to how to a lot of great Harry Potter movies. And this all because he the the character came first and the performance came first. Not some shtick of let's find an actor who kind of looks just like him and then we'll use prosthetics and let's go get another voice actor to dub the voice of Richard Harris, who by the way was also the Emperor Rilius in uh, Gladiator. You know, hand an old man another blanket expanded the empire. He's so good in Gladiator. Anyway, oh, Richard Harris, you left us too soon. Um, no, the answer for Leia, and then what they did in The Rise of Skywalker, I get it. From, from a romantic point of view, I get it. They took old, unused footage of Carrie Fisher that was filmed for another movie, and they kind of 
forced it and shoehorned it into the rise of Skywalker because it was so important that it still be Carrie Fisher. And ultimately that was a disservice to Carrie Fisher and a disservice to the movie. And the movie's got to come first. And I have always contended and the movie proved me right that the way to number one, honor Carrie Fisher and to best serve the movie was to recast the character. Get a talented, gifted, world-class actress who could come in and pick up the baton for Carrie Fisher and carry it across the finish line for her. And that way you wouldn't have to, well, let's make scenes in this movie to fit these old, unused footage of Carrie Fisher that we never actually used in those movies and we're shoehorning them into this one. Like, who's who thought that was a good idea? Who on earth thought that was a good idea? There's a reason, well, first of all, almost nothing in, the, in the, the the Rise of Skywalker was very good. But I mean, nothing, none of the Carrie Fisher scenes worked. None of them worked. Because they were scenes Carrie Fisher shot for a different movie altogether. It, no, the answer was simple and it was right in front of everybody. And people let their emotionality, it's not even a real word, but people use their emotionality. They let their emotionality get in the way of making a sound solid decision. You recast the role. You can't recast. Yes, you can. And instead now, instead of honoring the memory of Carrie Fisher by giving Princess Leia a truly great real role in the movie that's not just recycled old footage from a previous movie, they gave us crap. They gave us crap. So the last we saw of Princess Leia was some crappy roles with crappy dialogue in a crappy movie. They should have just recast it. That is how you honor Carrie Fisher. That is how you best serve the movie. That is how you best serve the movie. And I remember I would say that before, long before the movie came out. And people said, no, John, you can't do that. You can't recast. Yes, you can. And they should have. And the movie proves it. It was a terrible idea. Mm. And I didn't get mad about it because everybody who made that decision, their hearts were in the right place, right? I disagree with them, but their hearts were in the right place. Like everybody wanted to honor Carrie Fisher, right? People who said don't recast, people who said recast, everybody wanted to honor Carrie Fisher. It's just that we all had different ideas about the best way to do that. So I never got mad um, that they decided to recycle old footage that was shot for a completely different movie that never got used because I understood their hearts were in the right place. They wanted to honor Carrie. And I, I, I respect that. I do. But it was still the wrong decision. There was a better way to honor Carrie. There was a better way to serve the movie that would have given you ultimately a better movie. Now, I still don't know that that would have saved The Rise of Skywalker, but at least it would have made it better. You know what I'm saying? So no, the answer was not get somebody who looked just like her and then hire a voice actress to overdub. Again, none of that is putting the movie first. You got to put the movie first. By putting the movie first, you're honoring the character. By honoring the character, you're honoring those who brought the character to us. So yeah, the, the answer, the answer, my friend, Dark Helmet, my film loving brother, was to recast it, period, with a great actress who is willing to step in there, honor the legacy of Carrie uh, Fisher and carry that baton for her across the finish line. That's that's me. That's just my opinion. All right. Uh, Matthew Denton writes, 
You always say that what Warner Brothers did with HBO Max is killing their films this year as far as being successful. Yes. Uh, And while that is true from a traditional box office way of looking at it, it isn't how well the films do on HBO or isn't how well the films do on HBO just as important to them. No. See, the idea with HBO was they were under the impression and we've seen the reports in Forbes and everything else and the people in Warner Brothers who speak out about this. They had this belief that by pulling this move, I mean, Rob describes it better than I do, but basically this was a move that certain higher up power people at Warner Brothers were trying to do to make themselves look good to their overlords. And their belief was that the growth of HBO Max would be, would just skyrocket. Like that the growth of HBO Max would be skyrocket. They were sacrificing hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that they could have made in the box office. And they rolled the dice, believing that this move, that all these movies are going to be day and day on HBO. Oh my God, the growth of HBO is going to be, it's going to skyrocket. It's going to be triple digit growth. And what we actually saw was we had growth in 2021, but it was the same trajectory growth. Again, not the same growth as 2020, but the but the same trajectory of growth that we had anyway in 2021. Maybe a little bit of a bump. It was an unmitigated disaster from them on every front. And then a whole bunch of movies that could have become memorable part of the zeitgeist were all instantly forgotten. They were all instantly forgotten. They all instantly went away and were instantly forgotten. I mean, not. I mean, some of them had certain levels of success, I suppose, but it, make no mistake about it. And, and Forbes put it better than I am, but it, this whole thing, this whole year for them has been an unmitigated disaster. An absolute unmitigated disaster because it didn't really do anything for HBO anyway. And that's the real kicker. They thought, they thought that in one year, they could get to pace with Disney Plus. That this move, oh, are you kidding? Film fans are going to love the idea that they're going to be stay at home watching and everybody's going to rush. And they honestly thought that by the end of 2021, they would be at pace with Disney Plus. And how far off are they now? A lot. A lot. So it was an unmitigated disaster every way you look at it, unfortunately, Matthew. All right. Next up. And we only got time for a couple more here, guys. This one comes to us from Mischievous Gremlin, who writes, Hey, John, glad to hear you enjoyed Venom 2. I, I really did. I had a very, very good time with it. Let there be carnage. We'll likely see it on Friday or Saturday. Uh, in your Out of the Theater review, you said that Tom Hardy was great, but how was Woody as Cletus Cassidy? I liked Woody as Cletus Cassidy. You know, it's funny because I heard from somebody else who likes the movie, but they didn't really like Woody Harrelson as Cletus. And I remember saying to them, like, uh, he was exactly like Cletus in the comic books. And maybe that's the problem. Maybe they needed to adapt it a little bit more. But I thought his Cletus, like right from the haircut and everything to the mannerisms and everything, I thought he was very much, I thought he was very, very much Cletus Cassidy. I, I from the comics. At least that's how I saw him. Maybe, but you know, my friend disagreed and that's perfectly fine too. But I thought he was very good. But the thing is, Tom, uh, uh, I almost said Holland, Tom Hardy is so good in this. I get it. It's, he's going to outshine everybody in this movie. 
And that's not taking anything away from anybody else in it, including Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson did a very, very good job. Very good job. But he's going to get outshone here by Tom Hardy because Tom Hardy just had a lot more of the higher profile stuff to do in the movie. So he was very good in it. But you're going to hear more people talking about Tom Hardy. And that's not a bad thing for Woody Harrelson either. All right. Last question of the day comes to us from Jonathan, who writes, I don't understand this need for Venom 2 to be rated R. It doesn't. It didn't need to be rated R at all. Almost everyone online watching clips of it are like, so cool, but damn, should have been rated R. Like, why? Why do people think making something R is better? Uh, Is it because films like Deadpool and Logan? Well, I mean, I don't know. I've had this constant debate with a lot of people myself. It's like, so that movie... If, if they just said fuck more, that would have made the movie better. Like that's a better movie. It's more cinematic. It's, it's better if they said fuck more or uh, this exact same movies, but the girl takes her shirt off and shows her, her boobies. Then that makes the movie better. Might've made for a good scene, but uh, honestly, that makes the movie better. I personally, after watching Venom, I never once felt like this movie needed to be rated R. It's very violent. As a matter of fact, I think I said in my out-of-theater review, I said, I'm kind of shocked they got away with a PG-13 for, listen, a lot of people get murdered. There is much murder. Much, much, mucho much murder in this movie. They should call it the much murder movie. Uh, A lot of people die (laughs) in this movie. And... Uh, Don't get me wrong, it doesn't have like a Rambo body count, but a lot of people get murdered in this movie. And so, um, yeah, I I don't, this movie did not need to be rated R. It just didn't. It didn't need to be rated R. All right, guys, listen, there's still more to come uh, from Jonathan and uh, Tim Platt and Luke. Do not worry, guys. We're going to pick right up where we left off on tomorrow's episode of the John Campia Show. So thank you guys so much for joining me tonight for this installment of the companion video. Thanks to all you guys listening on our podcast form as well. Uh, If you guys don't know, we do have an audio version, audio only version of the John Campia Show and our companion videos. We put it up on podcast feed. So if you need an audio only version for when you're commuting or at the gym or your work or whatever, go to your favorite podcasting app of choice, look up the John Campia podcast and go and subscribe to it today. So it's there ready for you and waiting for you when you need it. Uh, and special thank you to all you guys who sent in these topics and questions. Number one, because you gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you supported this channel as you did it. And all of us involved with the John Campia show. Thank you guys very, very much for your support. Okay, guys, that'll do it for me for now. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye.